back and forth. So um, turn there with me to Genesis. And hopefully I can find what I'm looking for. Last week we got through the first three days, maybe the first four days, but there are seven days in the days of creation. And as I said last week, a lot of times people try to take the creation account and make it a separate issue completely in the Old Testament narrative, but it's not. It is the outline and introduction of the entirety of the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, as well as it is dynamically the introduction and the outline of Genesis itself. And so we do the same thing with everything that we read, everything that we learn. We try to systematize it in such a way that we can actually speak as though we are experts or say, hey, you know what, I've got all the answers here. I know what I'm talking about. Here's the, here's the theological way it should be understood, etc. But God doesn't teach that way. God teaches supernaturally through the reading of his word. God teaches us when we read the scripture in whatever language it has been written. Now, I know that I've been through massive debates over the years, privately, publicly, and other places, about, well, which version of the Scriptures should you read? Uh, should you read the original Greek, or should you read Chinese, or should you read Spanish? Well, whatever you speak. Whatever language you speak, you should read. Now, there is a difference in translations. Some of them are dynamic. Some of them are word for word. Some of them are thought for thought. Some of them are this, that, and the other. Some are power, para, paraphrases all the way around. But uh, ultimately, you need to stick with something that has years and years of scholarship in the context of translating the terms and translating the words. And most importantly, you need to be discerning. You need to ask yourself, is what I'm reading here in this particular word, like I'm a stickler in John's writing because I know the Greek and very well in John's writing, and so when I see an English translation that doesn't fit with what I've been studying for the last 15 to 20 years of, in that, I go, nope, oh, that's a wrong translation. It doesn't mean I throw it out, but it does mean I pay attention. I say all that to say this. God's word, no matter how it's been translated, can still speak because the truth of who Christ is is there. Now, there, may, there have been good attempts at trying to manipulate it and change it and hide it and twist it, just like there have been in all sorts of historical writings and theological systems and everything else. There's always a, a, a purpose behind the author. But, beloved, God's word cannot be twisted. God's word cannot be hidden if we just read it, if we're familiar with it. Because they might do a good job in John's writing, but they may miss Peter's. They may miss the Old Testament. They may miss something over here and all of a sudden there's an incongruent mindset that pops out. There's this, wow, something's different here, so what are we learning? Well, here's the reality is that the Scripture cannot contradict itself. And as a matter of fact, the Scripture does not contradict itself. There are zero contradictions in the Bible whatsoever. There are none there. Now, the higher critics are going, well, I've got an entire paper. I don't care what paper you've written. You've just wasted all of your time. There are no contradictions in the Bible. You are contradictory in your illogical inability to understand it. And you're looking for those contradictions. You see? And so we don't have to be these high scholars to understand the Scripture. As a matter of fact, God doesn't give the depth of Scripture to high scholars. He won't give it to them. God will not give the PhDs the understanding of the Word of God because of their academia. God gives the understanding of His Word simply to the sheep. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as I read chapter 2 this morning, Paul makes it very clear in those first two chapters that he did not come with all of his pharisaical knowledge. He did not come with any application of, the, of all of his understanding of Moses. He, did not bring, he brought zero of that to his illustrations, zero of that to his explanations, none of that. None of that. He said, all of this is dumb. My understanding of every jot and tittle of the word of God from birth to the day Christ met me on the road to Damascus is nothing. He didn't marry his brain into the spirit of God. And the spirit of God go, wow, poo, I needed a guy like Paul. Now everybody can see. Paul said, God will not use the wise. And I say that to reemphasize, and I'm going to get on my war horse. I'm not going to beat the drum anymore. I'm going to be on my war horse. We must be in the Word of God alone. Get off of social media and Google and YouTube and all the other sources where we find the answers. And it seems somewhat silly because we're looking for the answers. But beloved, listen, read the Scripture. Read the scripture. Then when we have questions, we can discern if others are answering correctly. Don't quote a sermon from me to prove your point in the scripture. It is erroneous. It is erroneous. It is a a huge fallacy to quote me as an authority. You ever thought about that? You ever quoted a, a human being who didn't write the Bible? It's a, it's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. It doesn't matter what I say. What matters is, is what I say, is it what God's Word is saying? So, for example, I mean, I, I got a lot of heat last week on that. I just, people, well, you know, why do you think your understanding of Genesis is the right one? I don't. I think Genesis is written very plainly. If I have to know science... To understand Genesis, there is no gospel there. If I have to understand theological systems to know the gospel, there is no gospel there. If I have to know what antichrists look like in order to see what Christ looked like, there is no Christ there. You see? I don't need to know. You don't need to know. Salvation is of the Lord, not of the antithesis. Salvation is of the Lord, not of academics. Salvation is of the Lord by grace alone. By grace you have been saved, beloved. By grace you have been saved. How do you know that you have eternal life? Because God has saved you by His grace. The Spirit of God rests in us, the reality of that. And saving faith is a breath, inward rest sitting still without any worry, fear, or searching to find eternal life. We don't search to find eternal life. Eternal life finds us and His name is Jesus Christ. And that is the only gospel that of which you do not have. You do not have good news in your heart. You don't have to know anything except Christ and Him crucified. And all that that means will be taught to you and, it, and you will understand it. But saving faith is a supernatural work of God that regenerates the 3-year-old or the 30-year-old or the 93-year-old. 
When He wants to, at His will, at His command, when He says, let there be life in the light of my child, the elect one here, there is life. And the Word of God just starts to make sense. That's evangelism, by the way, beloved. That is evangelism, to share the good news of Christ Jesus. And what does God do? God calls His elect people to come and learn and to hear. Well, how do we know? Because you know Him. The Scripture will teach you of Him. The Scripture will show Him to you. You will see Christ and you will know Christ and Christ will be a person, a God, a Redeemer, a friend, a Savior. You will know him. And then the Bible will teach you what he's done. And the sheep will receive that teaching. The sheep will hear it and go, yes, this is the beauty of my Savior. Yes, this is the voice of my Savior. Yes, this is the truth of my Savior. Yes, this is the doctrine of my Savior. Yes, this is the gospel. Wow! And what is our response? All. Wonder, thanksgiving, excitement in our soul, peace beyond all comprehension. Unity despite the fact that the world is falling away and then we wake up the next day and all that goes to heck. <laughs> so then where's our assurance? In Him alone. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Beloved, by grace you have been saved. The kindness and the mercy and the love of God through Jesus Christ who died for His people. Who satisfied the wrath of God for His people. Who substituted Himself in the justice of righteousness for His people. And who credits His people His own righteousness. See, you don't have to really understand the depths of all that. But you must know this Christ. There are many Christs in the world today. There are many so-called Gospels in the world. There are many so-called preachers in the world. But every company that I've ever been around has evangelists. By name. That's what they call it. They're marketing experts and they have evangelists. They have director of evangelism. Companies. Look it up. Go on LinkedIn and look up evangelists. You'll see it. Sun Microsystems. They have them. Everybody has them. Because to them, their company is good news. So we'll tell it. We'll tell the story of our company. But we all know what the good news is. It's the story of Christ. And that's what Genesis is about. It's about how did all this get started? How did all this happen? Moses had been hearing this story since he was a little tiny baby, saved out of the basket by the sovereign grace of God. God saved him by grace because he had a greater purpose to point to Christ. He is not the Christ. Everything that takes place, when the wind blows, it blows by the will and the wishes of God the Father. That he has decreed, he has said it. And therefore it is. And because it is, it is good. The, the, the activity of the demonic, the activity and the experience and the, and the reality of evil, divisions and things of this nature are all part of God's sovereignty. So we either get to, we either get to rejoice in it or snob our nose at the Lord for His good gifts. Genesis 
is a book about the beginning of redemption, which is a book about the illustrations and the preparations of God being glorified for who He is, being seen for who He is, being seen through the creation of His people, who He will create for Himself out of the darkness, out of the chaos, out of the tempest, out of the law. And beloved, when I get to chapter 3, or I get to chapter 2 and 3, some of us are going to have conniptions. Y'all, y'all might break dance in the floor. We might get Baptocostal up in here for the first time ever. Y'all might knock over chairs and tables. Because when I tell you that Adam was cursed, before he ever fell, you're going to have a heart attack. But the Bible says it. How do you know? You're so smart. No, I'm not. I just read the English. And in Romans chapter 3... Paul has already told us that everyone who is under the law is cursed. The covenant of works is an illustration of the curse of the work. The covenant of works is an illustration of the fact that only Christ is the righteousness of God. And that's why God created the world, see. That's why we have so many legalists in the world. That's why we have so many legalists on every scale. Well, I can't do this, or I won't do this, or I won't do that, and all this kind of stuff. And That's why I have so many legalists that are known as antinomians. Antinomian is just a new law. It's just a new regulation. It's just a new condition. It's just something else that must be present. Well, I know I hear you say you trust in Christ, but let's dig a little deeper. Is it wrong to dig a little deeper? No. No, not at all. But it feels bad, doesn't it? Why do we dig a little deeper? Because we care. And when we find out that there's really not the Christ of the Bible there in that testimony, we can then proclaim the Christ of the Bible. We can share the truth. We can correct the error as it comes along. And we can walk together in unity knowing that we have done our job of just being a vessel and letting the Lord do the work of salvation. And when the Christ of the Bible is then confessed, we rejoice. And when the Christ of the Bible is not confessed, but people double down on their alternatives we do what we pray that the lord would do his work that person is not reprobate (laughs) we won't know that until the day of judgment christ alone knows his people he knows those for whom he died he understands the purposes of god and because he is god and he has put them all under his feet all humanity. And so we don't get to make that judgment. To say that we do is to say that we are indeed God. At the very least, we are like God because we have the eyes of God to see the hearts of men. It's not okay. Where is this coming from? It comes from the scripture, doesn't it? Because what is the instruction of the apostles, the instruction of the prophets? We see Moses, who had heard this story his entire life, and then by the Spirit of God, instead of it continuing in the context of the oral tradition, God the Holy Spirit decided to write it down through the hands of Moses. And Moses wrote down the story. It isn't embellished. It isn't added to. You ever had people tell you a story and... You heard it before, but it changed a little bit. You know why that happens? Because in people's minds, psychologically, especially ones who don't sleep, what you say in your mind becomes the reality. 
What you think you heard becomes the reality. That's why a guy like me has every note, every email. I take notes. When I get home from a meeting, I write them down. I've got millions and millions and millions and millions of pages of notes. And so, no, I don't know what I ate this morning. But I can look. I can look. I can go back and look. I can go back and look and see what I said to my wife in 2006. I can go back. I can look. I know what I said to my doctor when he delivered my first child who just had her first baby. (laughs) Crazy. 1998. I know what happened. I know what happened at dinner that night. Why? Because I wrote it down. I wrote it down. My memory's not that good. I wrote it down. So now instead of trusting the oral tradition of, or, the embell- or, or maybe there's an embellishment. Maybe instead of trusting that, we can trust the Spirit of God wrote through the hands of Moses. That he put in his heart exactly what was to come down on this paper so that it is the Word of God. The apostles sent by Christ say that it is the Word of God. Jesus the Christ himself says that it is the Word of God. He says that Moses wrote of him. This begins here. God has declared salvation for a people that did not exist but would exist when He created them. And Genesis is the story of how they came to be. Genesis is the reality coming into being. Genesis is the promises of God seen. Genesis is the light visible for the first time ever. Which is the glory of God. I talked last week about the fact that there was some confusion over the Old Testament application, especially in the context of Genesis. But some people think there are kingdom purposes and things of that nature. Well, see, Jesus talked about kingdom, He talked about Himself. See, we know that because in the other gospel, John's gospel, we see that Jesus was talking about Himself. Jesus was talking about the time when there would not be a world, but everyone who was in him would be at this world in a new world. See how easy the cults can come up with some of these things? A new world? Oh. A new world order, maybe. (laughs) And so on and so forth. And there's always creativity in the mind of man, but creativity is not what God is looking for. That's not how we interpret Scripture. We just read it, and the Spirit of God gives us the simplicity of it. Some people think it's about creative intentions. Some people think it's about scientific evidence for God. Some people think it's about the scientific reality of creation. And all those things are interesting hobbies, but they have no relevance to the Word of God whatsoever. The Word of God is to teach us about the redemption of God's people, which is ultimately His glory. And what is the, what is the undercurrent of all of this? Why did God say, let there be light? Because He had elected a people for Himself. Oh, that's a stretch. It's not a stretch. It's a stretch to divorce Genesis 1, 2, and 3 out of the rest of the Pentateuch. It's a stretch to divorce Genesis 1, 2, and 3 out of the rest of the 50 chapters. When the first 12 chapters have to do with God dealing with the world in its Genesis, creating the peoples of the world and the purpose of redemption, what does He do? 
He makes promises of redemption. And then he calls a man out of the world, out of the chaotic garbage, out of the destruction, out of the darkness. And his name is Abram. He's worshiping a false god. He's worshiping the reflected light of the moon. And then what happens? He grants Abraham, by grace, faith to trust in the promise of God. He doesn't disclose himself fully to Abram. And then he says, go, and Abraham went. He was empowered by God to believe the promise of God, and he went. And out of Abram, God created then a people out of the world for himself. And then in the last chapters, 13 through 50, is the teaching of what God did with Abram. And it's a picture of election. It's a picture of redemption. So then even out of Abraham, there were chosen people. And God's blessing the world. And God's blessing the people that he chose out of the world. And then out of those people that he blessed, he blessed a particular people called the elect. Which in the Old Testament are called the remnant. And this is a continual reality of the work of God throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Even today in history now, post-Pentecost. So that we can see the redemption of God's Electing grace, electing people, electing love. We can see God creating a people for himself who he has saved in Jesus Christ. And we saw these things in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We see that that's just a a plain statement. This is a review. And then I'll get into day four. God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is just a blanket statement that God, before there was started and created all that there is. And specifically, he created the sky and the dirt. The earth being the dirt, the heavens being the atmosphere. In the beginning, before there was anything, there was God, and then he created the heavens and the earth. And then the earth was without form and void. The earth did not exist. The earth was not there. That's what that says. The dirt didn't happen. It wasn't there, and God said, well, what is that down there? Let me see what I can do with it. You ever had a really good cook in the kitchen, and there's just really not anything prepared in the refrigerator? But they can go in there and find stuff like, you know, crushed up Cheetos and all sorts, and create a gourmet meal. That's not how God created. God didn't go in there and make much to do out of a mess. He went in there with nothing. He didn't even go in there. He was, and then he created there. And then he created it all with order and with purpose. And that purpose is to see his glory. And that glory is ultimately seen in the creation of a people who he has chosen before the world began. That they may be alive in Christ. And that's the story of the Bible. That's what it's all about, by the way. That's it. So the earth was not. And then the illustration of darkness over the face of the emptiness. Over the abyss, the emptiness, the darkness, the void, the nothingness. God the Spirit, in reality, in essence, was there over the face of nothingness. And the illustration there of nothingness is using the metaphor of water. So here's God. And God has revealed 
not just here, the apostles prove what I'm saying, that God, the, the scripture reveals, God reveals himself through his creation. Paul says that in Romans 1, doesn't he? All men are without excuse, for they can clearly see. You know what's that's funny about the way Paul says it in Romans 1? He said they can clearly see. It's absolutely obvious when people look at the world that there is a designer and a creator and an orderer of such things. And so all of the other ideas and philosophies behind that is just an attempt to suppress what they absolutely know is true. And beloved, it's the same thing that happens in the gospel. When people hear the gospel in their natural mind or in their religious mind or in their self-righteous mind or in their pious mind or in their academic mind and they hear it and they go, eh, I, just don't, I just don't know. And then they create a way for it to work in all sorts of ways that the scripture doesn't give. They're just suppressing the truth. Well, this is what it really meant. This is how it really ought to look at it. There's some things that I used to could listen to. And for fun, I used to listen to some scientific nonsense. That's an oxymoron, but I just love the nonsense sometimes. It's just to see someone with a, with a Ph.D. in physics talk nonsense. It's entertaining. I don't know why it's just entertaining to me. Shouldn't be, but it is. But we see these people, they say these things, they express these things, but yet they're, they really know. They're not, they're not tricking anybody. They're just lying to themselves. And so what does the scripture say in Romans 1? God gives them over to a debased mind. He lets them continue to believe all this stuff. But one thing that I can't deal with, I can listen to that, but one thing that I can't deal with is these people who are changing the narrative of the Bible in order to make sense of social issues in the context of creation. Now, maybe you haven't come across it. Please don't deal with it. Please don't go look at it. But now that I've told you not to, you probably are already looking it up on your phones. Well, God didn't really create Adam and Eve. He created a whole new race. You know, y'all have heard the theories. You know, all this, that, and this. And this is what it makes sense. And this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't have the stomach for that. I don't have the stomach for that. I don't have the stomach for false gospels, false Christ, false narratives. Whether it have to do with the scripture or anybody else. But specifically in the one to whom the scripture points. But this beginnings. God then says in verse 3, he says something. He declares something. He decrees something. He says, and let there be light. And what God declares is. What God decrees shall come to pass. So what that means for us, and this is review of last week, is that everything that comes to pass, God has decreed. Why did Satan rebel in his heart? Because that's what he was created to do. Why is there evil in the world? Because that is what God decreed. Because if God is sovereign, then he is. If he's not, then we're in trouble. And we really shouldn't be playing happy days with a little old book like this that's just a bunch of nonsense. 
God said, let there be light. He decreed it, and then there was light. And this light, God saw it. He understood it. He knew it. He decreed it. He was not a, a distant force behind it. He is the light. And it was good. And in this sense, in verse 4, the latter part of that sentence, this is the quintessential chopping block, pun intended, of the entire biblical narrative of God and His electing glory. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on the first day. Now I said this last weekend. We didn't get there because I talked too much last week. But we are ramping this up. The whole point of the creation account is to get to day seven. Day seven is the point. The reason everything exists is because God rests. It's the point. God's not tired. The reason God separated the light from the darkness is because that's what he's in the business of doing. Displaying himself in righteousness, in light, and in everything that he does in the creative order. He shows that because he is creating a people for himself to save according to his righteousness and his justice, which are equivocal. So God reveals that he can create all things out of nothing. And he reveals that he has done it in a sense where he has revealed himself as the one doing it. And he has a purpose behind it. Let's keep going. And God said, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So now all of a sudden he's separating the waters from the waters. That's what it says. So you created the waters, now he's separating the waters. What's the point of this? God is separating the waters. God is dividing. God is on the chopping block. He's pulling things away from other things. He's separating things. I want to, I'm going to go ahead and give you the punchline. Think about the sheep and the goats. This is the purpose of Genesis. This is why God created the world the way he did. This is why the order of the cosmos and all of its amazing intricacies, all of the things that I, that I drool over sometimes, because not because they're so enticing and tasty, because my brain goes dead and I don't swallow. To sit there and go, wow, this is amazing. But it's nothing because the cosmos and all of its things and all of its glory only points to the very one who is most glorious who created it all to whom it points and reflects who is God the creator Jesus Christ our Lord who is the God man who came and separated himself from glory in order to separate a people from darkness to the praise of his glorious grace and so on and so forth. So God is separating the waters, and God made the expanse, verse 7, and separated the waters that were under the expanse. So now here we go, and this is where we get the flat earth ideas, because of the imagery and the poetry of antiquity, of how they understood this writing. It's not scientific data here. Though science speaks to it, it's not scientific data. There's an expanse. So God separated this water. The water that was here, he pulls some of it here, and it 
is in the atmosphere and he leaves some of it down there and we would know it as the seas. And it is the water up here that gives water to the ground where there are no seas. God has created this. He's separated. And it was so. He said it and it was so. And God called the expanse the skies. Or your Bible might say heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So here is this nothing and then it became something. And then there was waters separated. He separated light from darkness and then he separated the waters And you need to understand too, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that a lot of the people of the Old Testament, even the pagans, understood that things that were untouchable and unsearchable were ominous or mysterious or glorious. And so the things under the ocean, the things that were impossible to see there, were scary and dark and empty and deadly. And yet, even the Greeks and the Romans in latter antiquity would come to the idea that there, the heavens were a place of celestial glory and that there were gods. They called the gods the constellation. They named them after their gods and, and different things. And so they came up with these stories of how you know, the, 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 the divine beings were in the skies because they couldn't get there. You realize we haven't been flying very long. And even less so, we've been to outer space, which <laughs> I could have told them what was out there. So people looked up at the heavens, at the skies, and thought, oh, heavens. So that's where we get the idea of heaven being up. And death and devilish and demons being below in the abyss, in the sea. That's where we get that idea. It's not a physical manifestation of, you know, right above the atmosphere at the biblical point we get to heaven. But yet they tried to do it at Babel, didn't they? And men have been trying, mankind has been trying to erect a tower to the glory of God from the beginning. And only God can separate the light from the darkness. Only God can separate the waters and the expanses. And God saw that it was good. And in verse 9 he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So all of a sudden he's pushing the waters away. He's separating the waters. He separated the water from the water. Now he's separating the water from itself and bringing land. And this is what I talked about last week. Is now God is establishing in his order a place to put a people. We're not amphibians. And even if we were, we'd need somewhere else but the water to go. We, we are humans. God purposed to create a people for himself and established a bedrock, a foundation. This is the picture here. Why does the land exist? So that God could create a people in Christ. Let the waters be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. He said this and it was so. And God called the land dirt or earth. And he called, and then the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. In verse 11, And God said, Let the earth, out of the earth now comes something. Out of the earth comes life, vegetation, plants, yielding seed, fruit-bearing trees, and, 
in which is their seed. I don't know why that always trips my eyes up. Each according to its kind on the earth, on the land. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. So now God has created the form of the earth. God has established land and seas. God has established the sky and the land, the atmosphere. He's separating. And then from this separation, He creates life. Not sentient life, though some people have argued with me that you can hear broccoli scream. And I didn't mean to smile. I was trying not to smile with that. People are serious about that stuff, y'all. I don't want to mock it, but I mean, soulless in that sense. It's for our food. So those first three days, God creates the place to inhabit. And then he brings forth life. But it's not the point of the life that he wants to bring forth. It's not the reality of why the world exists so that we can have beautiful things and greenery. Though I love it. I love to grow plants. I love it. And my wife caught that bug a year or so ago. And now together we are an unstoppable monster. You can't walk on our porch now. Plants, plants, plants. But on the fourth day now, in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the sky, in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Now this is illustrating how God orchestrated the cosmos. How God orchestrated the order in which the world, the earth, actually works and operates. How God in His creative purposes put the earth and gave it its own star and sun, and then gave it a moon to reflect that light in the evening. So that even in the darkness, and now, well, what about full moon? Guys, come on. It's a picture. That as John says, the darkness has not overcome the light. When we look into the heavens and we see that the sun is up right now, and we see on the evenings when the moon is visible, there is light there. There is something to behold, the reflection of the light. That even in the darkness, we are not forsaken. Because the very Son of God was forsaken in our place. What do you think the psalmist means when he says, The heavens declare your glory? This is what he's talking about. So in this fourth day, now God begins to do incredible things. As He's divided the plants and the vegetation, and as He's created now these expanses in the heavens, these celestial bodies, He goes on, to, he goes on and He says in verse 16, And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he created the stars. And then verse 17 says, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over 
the day and to rule over the night. And here's a key. And to separate the light from the darkness. There's a distinction. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. But yet this is the first sunrise. Because the sun didn't exist until this day. See how we have to read the scripture? What is God teaching us here? God is outlining exactly what he's going to tell you over in chapter 4. What he's going to start talking about in chapter 4. God creates man and out of man he creates woman. God separates the land and out of land he takes and makes man. Out of man he takes and makes woman. Out of woman he gives the first son. Then he gives another one. And then between those two, he separates one from the other. He hates one and loves the other. Light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, life. These celestial bodies, these lifeless planets, these lifeless stars, they display the work of God in his hands and they declare his glory. And he sets this order in the cosmos and he sets it in such a way that all life shall be sustained, that the elect may come forth. And these two great lights, this glory, is a picture of His glory. They rule. It's a picture of His power in all circumstances. Just as He made two great lights, He shall make two great peoples. A people for His own possession who will share in His glory the very thing that Lucifer declared was His. The elect shall receive. And then the other for a great purpose, which is destruction. And in verse 20, we continue. And God said, let the waters swarm with living, of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So now God has decreed to fill the heavens and the waters with life. He's got plant life on the land and he's going to put other types of life in the other places. So then God created the great sea creatures. He created every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kind. He created every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. He approved of them. And He said, Be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the waters in the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. God said, let there be, and there was. God now, in each division, as I've said, puts life. He provides and establishes the water for the birds in the heavens to fly. He provides and establishes the salty waters of the seas, or even if we had the rivers and the lakes and the tributaries and all the other things that we know of in our water systems, Whatever they needed for life, God established it for them. God is in the business of establishing what is needed for life. So that He can show that He is sovereign in what is needed for eternal life. We don't, we don't have to distrust God. Just look at the world. If He can do that, He can do this. And if you can do this, you can do that. Then we see the separation in the New Testament. We see that the church is supposed to listen to the simple instructions of the apostles. We follow them very clearly. We, we listen to them and we do them. Why? Because it is God's prescription for life. 
Not eternal life, but for living life now. And specifically that we are to be humble and quiet and tend to our own business and work with our hands and serve each other as is the law of Christ. As Christ did in his way to the cross, we should do in this life. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? But we want to be the whipping in the temple guy. That's not the order. I mean, I know Hitchcock wrote an incredible piece. It was good cinema. The birds. And as a young boy, that scared the living daylights out of me. Used to be a bird watcher, then I walked out with a BB gun. But it doesn't happen. They're not going to revolt. The zombie apocalypse of birds. It's not, it's not going to happen. But yet humanity constantly revolts. The creation and everything that it is and all the life in it except humanity does exactly what it was created to do. One night we came home and we have a pair of red birds in our yard we've had for about six years. And this is some of my idolatry, I know. But they mate for life. And when one of them dies, that's it. Now I'm a sap. Okay? I'm very sappy in things like this. And I'll drive up one evening about 9 o'clock and I hear this screeching. And I see these birds diving down at one of my cats, whom I love dearly. And then I see the other cat run. And in its mouth was a baby cardinal. Well, that cat toted one that night. <laughs> And if you don't know what that means in the Tippins house, uh, I took that bird from it. And that bird survived and it's still alive today. Back with its parents. There was no way I was going to allow that cat to eat that bird or one of those forever mated cardinals. See? And you wonder why I don't sleep. <laughs> I'm worried about birds' relationships. Their marriage is in trouble. Children are hurting. Oh, gosh, I'm doomed. What's the point of it? That cat was just doing what it was created to do. It wasn't evil. Abigail's, it's so evil, you're so evil. Oh, is it? I thought you loved that cat. Can we get rid of it? You know? It's just evil. No, it was doing exactly what it was created to do. It was created to eat. The very vocalization of a feline and all the different noises they make are to emulate sounds to which birds will be caught off guard. Did you know that? I mean, think about it. So they can eat them. I mean, I grew up watching that. Sylvester and Tweety. Creation does everything it's supposed to do. It's working. It's establishing the purposes of God this very moment. Storms coming up. Purposes of God. Where do we fit in all that? As the elect, we have eternal life. Why are we worried about dying in a storm? I don't even think we're worried about dying as much as we're worried about losing stuff. I just bought that car. I just put up that house. And let's just be honest. We're so busy about the world's work that and we have to be good stewards of it, and we shouldn't just let it fall apart, but there are a lot of things on our hearts that are so out of order. 
That's why learning the scripture and reading the scripture and being together in the word of God is God's remedy for these types of things so they don't overcome us, so they don't overpower us, so that we can see that God has separated the light from the darkness and we are in the light. That there's waters in the expanse of the ocean that are sucking up into the cloud right there. It's just a tiny little picture. It's a little, it's a little, it's a, 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 a what do they call that? It's like a syndication of, of creation. God's just showing you how awesome he is. And then I feel like I'm at the foot of Sinai. (laughs) I don't want to see this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to watch this. I want to go somewhere else. Come back and see what happens. God brought all living creatures and on day five it shows that he created all the things that would bring forth great harvest in and of themselves in each of its kind. And just like we see in John's writing, as Jesus gave him his revelation, he listened and he heard the voices of the elect. And then he looked and he saw. I want you to think about this for a second. He looked and he saw Every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. And the translated word that we use in that text in Revelation is, I saw thousands of thousands and myriads of myriads of innumerable people. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about that gathering. That'll be the only pure gathering of the church of Christ that'll never cease. There'll never be, that is the Sabbath. There'll never be a last, there'll never be a sundown. Again, and when we think of the birds and the sea and the stuff and all these things constantly, with cardinals as an exception, constantly just mating and doing, it's just a picture of what God is doing to reproduce his people, to create a people for himself. It hit me when I was studying this a few weeks ago that out of the house of many reprobates come elect children. And sadly, out of the house of many elect families come reprobate children. And that is God's business. But that through the body of Christ, the gospel continues to be proclaimed, and through the proclamation of the gospel with the body of Christ, God will continue to call his people to the truth of who they are in Christ. Verse 24. And then God said, Let their earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is just like verse 1. 
It's a statement saying what God did. God created the heavens and the earth. And then he's going to talk a little bit about it. Now he's saying God created male and female. He created them. And then he's going to talk a little bit about it in chapter 2. Verse 28 says, Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish, over the birds, fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and every other living thing that moves on the earth. This is another way in which Scripture interprets itself. There aren't birds in the celestial heaven, the abode of God. It's talking about the sky. Okay? And God said, verse 29, Behold, see, look, here it is. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. What does that mean? That means you have food that replicates itself. You shall have them for food. Verse 30, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So not only are men to eat the plants, so are all the things on the earth to eat the plants. And it was so. You notice God did not say in the deep monsters of the sea because he was going to feed them people. No, I'm just joking. Make sure you're paying attention. That's the way I view it anyway. Stay out of the ocean. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. God decreed, and then God did. God created all living things according to their kind. God decreed, let us make man in our image. And what does that mean? I'm going to preach a text. I'm going to preach a specific sermon on that. And I want to preach a specific sermon on what it means to be blessed by God according to Genesis. I don't know, maybe I can put them into one, but if not, it'll be two. But the scripture says that let us make man in our image. And there are a lot of philosophies behind this. There are a lot of, uh, you know, historical ideas and traditions. I'm just going to say traditions. There's a lot of scholarship behind these things. And there are a lot of opinions. But there's only one answer. And the answer is in the text of Scripture. The answer is that when God created human beings, He did so in a sense in which they were after His own image, His own likeness. And that's all that He gives us. That's all that He gives us. And in the other explanation of the text, there's only... These things, and it's not exclusive or exhaustive, they have dominion over the world and everything in it. They have all provision at their fingertips forever. And that they have life. Life in a sense of having the ability to do that. The birds don't have any type of ability to do this or that or the other, but human beings do. I'm not even going to go as far to say that it is in the image of God and His righteousness because I don't think that Adam and Eve were righteous. I don't think they were evil. I think they were just a created being. 
It's like a cat. It's not evil if it eats a bird or if it scratches the child who wouldn't put it down. Dog's not evil because it runs after a squirrel or it bites the neighbor because it feels threatened. Adam and Eve aren't evil, but they're also not righteous. They didn't fall from grace. They'd never been given grace. They were created as a created being, perfectly as God intended, to do what they were intended to do in just a few minutes. (laughs) So God decreed and did create all these things. And in the image of God, He created man to walk in his goodness, approved by him as a type of rule to display his rule over all that he has made. Now, did God want mankind to rule the earth in perfection? No. Otherwise, that's what would have happened. So God rules. The pictures of light show that God's rule, God, God rules like the light does on day four. And the pictures of the persons of light, the life that is the light of men, the light that is the life of men, show that they have two lives. These two lights rule, and these two lives rule on day six. So God is in the business of displaying himself in his creative purposes, in his creative order. But the point of all of it is not for the rule. The point of all of this is for the day that is here. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Day seven. And I really wish, I I remember in seminary, I don't know when, I don't know which time it was, but I remember going through Genesis 2 and dealing with the Hebrew poetry here and looking at the structure and the language, and it's beautiful. Even the Hebrew, Genesis 1 is beautiful. It it rhymes in the Hebrew. It's It's actually poetic. It actually has rhyme and meter in certain places. But we don't have time to show the Hebrew poetry here in Genesis 2. But ultimately, God has created a place for his people to rest. That's why he created the world. He created a place for his people who are made in his image to rest in him. In him. And to worship him. And in the typology... We can look at the world as a creation of like a temple. We can look at the Garden of Eden as like a creation of the Holy of Holies. And I think that's why God illustrates the temple in the way that he does in his commands. Because the Garden of Eden is where God meets man, walks with him in the cool of the day. He's in perfect unity with God as a created being. And God the Son at that but then he's outside because he's not worthy. He in and of himself, even as a created being, is not worthy to share in the glory of God. You understand that? That was Lucifer's heart. See, humanity didn't mess up God's plan. Humanity is God's plan. And this creation of this world in the Garden of Eden is a type of temple, and ultimately the picture of the earth and the sky and the cosmos all points to the same thing, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Genesis 2 unfolds. I don't think it should be chapter 2, but it is, so we'll just go there. Go to chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. 
I mean, don't you put the the end on the last page? You don't put another chapter before it. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Everything that was ever going to be created was created. It was done. It was finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, reemphasizing that God had done it all, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, let's just, at face value, sound like God was tired. But God is not tired. God is not like man that he may sleep. God is not like man that he may think. God is not like man that he may learn. God is. And we need to see in this way that God has done it all. The water had no part. The land had no part. The skies had no part. The birds and the creeping things and the sea creatures had no part. The oceans had no part. The land had no part in it all. They were not, then they were, because He made them. And the beasts of the field and the men are the humans, the man and the woman, He made them. They had no part in it. They just were. God decreed, then God did, then it was, and it was good. And if this isn't a picture of sovereign grace, I don't know what is. There was no man, then there was a man. Poof! It's a picture of the gospel. A picture of there was nothing, then God gave life out of nothing. God is the one who is the giver of life at all times. And beloved, there is no time when a child is born that it's not a blessing from God. I don't care who he's born to. A child born into the world is a blessing even if it's born into the household of the most wicked, vile atheist that could ever walk the face of the earth. It's a gift. Don't ever forget that. Our bigotry sometimes rises above our own IQs. God is the giver of life. And when He was finished with all of His work, he approved and blessed the seventh day and made it set apart. He sanctified it. He made it like himself. He separated it. God is separate from everything. And then he created everything and he's still separate from everything. And then in that creation, he separated all of these things to show he is the God of distinctions, a God of separateness, a God of the word there is holy. And then, and then he rests and he separates the day of rest that has no end. It has no end because that's the point of creation is that he created a people and he would continue to separate his purposes and separate his people and create his people and separate them in Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified in Christ that they would sit with him and bask in his glorious grace forever. This is what worship is all about. This is why we exist. And this is why, as often as we're able, we should get together and assemble to hear the word so that we can know the truth and be reminded of the truth and then be instructed in the life that we're supposed to live as truth bearers. So there's no end to the seventh day. All things are perfect. This is what we need to know concerning every day and breath of our existence here. God has decreed the perfect rest with Him for His people. 
He shows this rest in how he created the world. He shows this rest in how he orchestrated history. He shows this rest in how he promised it all to be renewed in the person of Jesus Christ, as we'll see in chapter 3. And Jesus says this often. He says it often. He, he talks about how heaven has been opened and how the kingdom has come and all of these different things. And the apostles reiterate this idea, except they do so through the cross of Christ, is that Christ now has separated a people for himself through purchasing them. Through purchasing them. Jesus tells in John 1, Oh, you think you've seen that? You think you've seen something? That's amazing. Just because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you're impressed? Why do you think John's gospel starts out with the creation words? Because it's the gospel. You think you've seen something? Because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Wait. Just wait. Just wait. Until you see heaven open. Until you see the heavenly angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. You want to see creation? You want to see what it's all about? You want to see why God did what He did and the whole purpose of humanity is when heaven is opened on me. That's what Jesus is saying. And the fullness of all that God is, is revealed through me. God, the Son, came down from heaven to bring Himself. He is the life that was the light of men, and in Him was life, John says. See, John understood the, the, the gospel. John understood regeneration. God, John understood faith because he'd been shown by the Word. He'd been shown by the Spirit. He didn't have to sit down and, and dig and dig and dig to try to get it right. God just settled him with it. He was settled. Beloved, you need to be settled. When we're fearful, we're not settled. When we're in turmoil, we're not. It is not of God. God does not put fear and turmoil in the hearts of His people. It is the devil. It is the flesh. It is not good. He doesn't put anger in there either. And if I could print out, wouldn't it be something you could just go, like a Z-tape on a cash register? You just print out all your upsets and angers and just print it out and say, look at there, look at there. Boy, there ain't enough paper in the world. To print this one. There ain't enough. So Genesis and the gospel. Jesus came and he is the life of men. God will unite his people to himself. He's done so judicially and spiritually already. And one day he will do it completely physically. When God's ultimate intention of creation. Will culminate in the recreation of what? Of his church. Of his world. Not this one. He's not going to fix this one. That wasn't his point. This is the separate. This is the sifting grounds. This is the thrashing floor. 
the wheat and the chaff, the goats and the lambs, buddy, we're going bad together all the way to the end. But there'll come a day when the final act of creation, the final act of, and I'm using that metaphorically, when the it is finished will be true in the glorified sense. It's true now in the real sense. Jesus Christ, the Word, the living, the Creator God, the life, the light, He tabernacled with us. He revealed Himself to us. He taught us. He reconciled us. And He says, and where I go, I'm going to return and you'll be there with me. And why is it that we do what we do each week? That we may be reminded of these things. So that we may worship with thankfulness. So that we may look at the world around us. Maybe even our own hearts and minds. Maybe even our own households. And we can rest. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 is the very God that rests. I mean look at that. Listen to these words. I read it last week I think. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by, these, by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things. You talk about who's going to rule the world? Christ rules the world. Through whom He also created the world. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His essence of his nature and Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs and there's a lot there but for our purposes today Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, created the world that he may create a people for himself and he paid for them with his own life by becoming like them in the flesh and satisfying the wrath of God on their behalf and then giving them his righteousness according to the apostles. How can a man stand in the presence of God? He must be absolutely righteous as God is righteous. The only way that can happen is twofold, is that the sins of our essence are paid for and punished and then we are converted into an absolutely perfect, righteous being. And beloved, we're not perfect, righteous beings. So our righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. He counts for us in His death and in His life. In His flesh and in His divine. And He rests he is the rest. We could go through Hebrews. I mean, I read through it a couple of months ago. And then we have confidence to enter into the holy places. We have confidence to go back into the Garden of Eden that's being held by cherubim with flaming swords. And we have the confidence to just walk right on in there by the blood of Jesus who has separated us out of the world, snatched us out of the domain of darkness, and beloved, if we can do nothing, if we can do nothing, we can live together as a people and be patient and be loving as we worship God together. Without that, we have no purpose on the earth. There's no greater purpose than that. Let the Lord's peace be your heart. 
Let the Lord's peace be your God. Beloved, we must pray for one another that the peace that surpasses all understanding will be our mantle as the Spirit of God teaches us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the creation of the world. We thank you, Father, for the creation of our lives. Lord, that through all that you've made, you have purposed to bring your Son into the world to save your people for your glory and for your namesake. And so, as we worship today, as we continue to sing, and as we think about our independence, Lord, help us to see the silliness behind that. Though we might be, in an American sense, free, we are totally bound to your glory in the gospel. We are freed from the law. We are freed from death. We are freed from sin. We are freed from the wrath that is to come on the, those who are unbelievers. But Father, as your elect people, you have shown us the truth. And we have peace. Lord, let us have the freedom of peace. Let us look at the world around us and Yes, we see what it is and we see what exists in it. And Lord, if it weren't for your grace, we would be like the rest of the world, lost without hope, wondering how we're going to fix the problems around us. But Lord, you are the one who, are the, who orders in the chaos. You are the one who brings light out of darkness. Father, you are the one who speaks to the dead and life comes. So help us to trust in you. For our salvation and to trust in you for this life to trust in you and the lives of those around us father our own loved ones as you well know so many of us have loved ones who do not believe father we trust in you that you will do what is your purpose in their lives as we share the gospel with them and father we pray that you would also help our brothers and sisters in the faith some who are troubled some who are scared, some who are ill. And Father, there are many of us too who are are just having a difficult time with the normal things of life. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious in the small things and that your grace abounds whether we spend a dollar, Lord, or have a child or get very bad news from our doctors, whatever it might be. Your grace is enough. Your favor in Christ is enough. That's what it means that you have created us in Christ Jesus to live. You've created us in Christ Jesus to learn and to love one another and to learn the gospel. You've created us in Christ Jesus to praise you for your glorious grace. And so help us do that faithfully. Help us to be gentle. Help us to pray and help us to labor without fear and Help us to labor, Lord, without anxiety. And help us to labor, Lord, without giving up. For Christ cannot fail us. He did not quit. But he gave himself as a ransom for many. And we are glad to be counted in that number. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing, brother.